Welcome to another Alive at Springwood podcast, brought to you by Springwood Presbyterian Churches, where we don't believe churches are buildings. Churches are people. Disciples of Jesus bound together in diversity by God's love, while pursuing faithfulness and vulnerability, celebration and lament, reading the Bible and prayer. May you be encouraged and God glorified by this edition. going to do is I'm going to tell you a story or it's a testimony really and then look at a couple of the key verses in this in the passage we had read and then make some statements a series of statements and see where you think about them that that's where we're going um, and thanks Sam we've got a PowerPoint so if you can give me the the first slide um, this is a I guess it's a screenshot of some sort from a movie, a very recent movie, which is called Zone of Interest. Um, has anyone seen that? Anyone even aware of what this movie is? Okay. Um, I have not seen it either. And I probably won't go and see it. I, I don't think I can bring myself to watch it. But um, it's a very challenging movie. It's about the story of um, a guy named Rudolf I don't even know quite how to say it, Hoss or Hoss or something. He was the camp commandant of Auschwitz and he oversaw um, the extermination of um, something like three million people in that camp. And, and he lived next door. And this movie sort of set in his house. This was his house. He lived there with his family and he had three or four kids and one kid was even born while he was there and they would just have parties and play and raise their kids. And that was the wall and behind that wall, that's Auschwitz, that's the camp. And the whole movie doesn't show anything that happens in Auschwitz, you just hear stuff um, in the background. Meanwhile, he's there with his family and that's what you see and it's sort of an exploration of um, how you can sort of hold that together, how can you live with yourself. Um, if we can go to the next slide, um, that's Rudolf Hoss. He was um, actually born into a Catholic family, but in World War One, he, or just after World War One, he became a very committed Nazi. That's why he sort of ended up in charge of the camp. Uh, he was a soldier in World War One and then joined the Nazi Party. Became very, very senior. After the war, he hid, and. Um, was eventually found, for those who don't know, Auschwitz is in Poland and he sort of hid in Germany but then they got found him, um, Nazi hunters found him a year or two later, brought him back, brought him back to Poland to be tried for war crimes. And he was very scared at first, he was put in a Polish jail and was very scared that they would torture him. Um, he wasn't so much scared of dying but was scared of being tortured but that is not what happened. Um, they treated him really kindly. And let me just... Actually, I'll tell you a bit more of the story, then we'll read some of the stuff he said. Um, when he was in prison, he was ashamed of how of himself. Um, and he came to faith because he actually called for a Catholic priest. Funnily enough, he'd been um, in that area, there was a Catholic community and they had been raided and all put in Auschwitz and all massacred, except one priest who was away. Um, he was called to visit Hoss in jail and he ministered to him and he, Hoss became a Christian 
and then was executed a couple of days later in Auschwitz. He was hung in Auschwitz. I want to just read some quotes. Because um, while he was in jail, he wrote a, like an autobiography. Um, if we can go to the next slide. Um, these are his words. In Polish prisons, I experienced for the first time what human kindness is. Despite all that has happened, I've experienced humane treatment, which I could never have expected and which has deeply shamed me. I've inflicted terrible wounds on humanity. I've caused unspeakable suffering for the Polish people in particular, and I'm to pay for this with my life. May the Lord God forgive one day what I have done. Based on my present knowledge, I can see today clearly, severely and bitterly for me that the entire ideology about the world in which I believed so firmly and unswervingly was based on completely wrong premises. And so my actions in the service of this ideology were completely wrong. My turning away from my belief in God was based on completely wrong premises. It was a hard struggle, but I have again found my faith in, in my God. In the solitude of my prison cell, I have come to the bitter recognition uh, that I caused unspeakable suffering, but the Lord God forgave me. And he came to faith again in the last few days. Um, now, I wonder how you feel about that. Um, he claimed that he'd never directly killed anyone and he actually said two and a half million are res I'm responsible for, half a million were, they died because they were sick um, in the camp. But at the end he realised what he'd done was horrific evil. Now we preach a gospel that says there is no sin that is unforgivable, there is no one that is too far away, too bad, too evil for God. But here's where that belief gets really tested. Um, like if there's anyone who's too evil for God, you'd think this would be it. And in fact, it, when we hung around with Muslims for a long time, this was, I called it the Hitler objection, but that's the objection they kept on coming up again and again was, if Hitler had, right on the last day, had said, God, I'm really sorry, I want to be forgiven because of what Jesus has done, they'd say, would he be able to be saved? And again, the logic of the gospel is, yeah, he would be. Um, but this is like a real life. It wasn't just a hypothetical. This happened in real life. Um, but there's still something that feels difficult about it for us. And I think this is what Jesus is wrestling with in this parable. I won't read the story again. It's a pretty simple story. There's a guy who owns a vineyard and he gets workers in first thing in the morning, 6 a.m. and then 9 and then midday and 3 and then 5. And it comes to the payday at the end. And by the way, they agreed, he agrees to pay them a denarius, which was like a day's labour. Um, but maybe a better way to think about it is it was, that's what it costs to keep a family alive for a day. So. It wasn't like they were working per hour, actually. It was just, here's a fair day's wage for you to provide for your family. And so what he was doing was anyone who came and worked for him during the day, he just gave them enough so that they could look after their family that day. And these were not, these were not business owners. These were labourers who were working hand-to-mouth every day. They'd go out to a field and they'd need, it's like, like this in a lot of Africa, I just need enough money to look after my family today and then tomorrow and tomorrow. Um, no one was ripped off. 
no one was underpaid, so there was nothing entirely, there was no injustice in that sense. Everyone was just given enough to look after their family. Um, all that was happening was the ones at the end were being treated really generously. They hadn't worked for very long. And not only that, there might be good reasons why they were left at the end. Like it actually says he finds them late and why, why haven't you been working? Oh, well, we, no one gave us a job. You know, there's probably reasons why they were there last. They probably weren't there at 6 a.m. looking for a job. They weren't willing. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were bad workers. Maybe their reputation. Who knows? But he paid everyone enough to look after their family for a day and it was not unjust. But notice what, and we're in verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 12. He paid the full day workers last and those who, had, who were hired last said, these people over here, they've only worked for one hour. You have made them equal to us, even though we've done all the work. Um, so that's the challenge. It's not fair because we want, we actually want equality, but we want everything to be equal. We want work to be equal to pay. We want equity. Um, so the question that this parable is raising, is it unfair? Is it unfair for God to pour out equal blessing on people who are not equal. Um, now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to, going to make some statements. I want to make some statements about how God treats people equally and then some statements about how God treats people unequally. We'll see what we'll do with them. So, can we get the next slide up, Anne? Yeah, next one. Okay. Is God unfair? Is the gospel unfair really is the question. So first thing is that God loves us all equally. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, God loves every individual person in the world with the same relentless, faithful passion. Parents here, give me a stick up your hand if you're a parent. Okay, how many you got? Four. Four. Brilliant. Who's your favourite? Ah, <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> right. Right. So I come, might come back to you guys as we go through, because family is a really good model for what we're talking about. But, yeah, you, you don't have favourites. Everyone loves their kids equally, in a sense, and God's like that for, for humans. And by the way, I'm not going to look up all the Bible verses here. Write them down and you might have to do some homework because I'm going to be giving you quite a few. Second truth, I think, is that God blesses the righteous and the unrighteous equally. Um, so in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, it says God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And there's this sense in which God pours out blessings in this age on people. Um, so we, we're living in sense in the general grace of God all the time and he pulls that out equally on every person. More importantly, God longs for all us sinners to repent equally. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3, God longs that everyone will turn to him for repentance. We're all sinners, God longs equally longs for everyone in the same way that if any of us have 
kids who are messing around, like you want all your kids to grow up behaving well, <laughs> to you want them all equally transformed. You don't have favourites in that sense. Um, Luke 15, we're going to come to that, keep coming back to Luke 15, the story of the two sons. One is wildly profligate and there's a huge gap between him and his father. The other one's at home and is distanced by his legalism or by his performance, whatever you want to call it. Um, the father longs for both of them to be close and intimate, same longing. God forgives all repenters, next one, God forgives all repenters equally, which is completely and fully. A couple of verses there, Psalm 103, that's the one that says God throws your sins as far from east as west, God throws your sins away from you. Um, when you repent, when you put your faith in Jesus, all your sins are wiped away, equally for all of us. And God offers every forgiven sinner access to his eternal presence. Uh, Revelation 7, this beautiful image of people around the throne and there are people in white robes and John says, who are these? Who are these people in white robes? And the answer is, these are, these are the ones who have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. And everyone equally has access to the throne room. We're all in white robes equally. God treats all sinners equally. Um, so then that raises the question, does it matter at all then? Does it matter at all what we do in this life? Um, does it matter if we're heinously, horrifically evil? Does it matter that we're obedient? As long as just at the end that we repent, does it have any consequence what happens in our life? Are our intuitions that Rudolf Hoss, that there's something difficult about that? Is that a right intuition? So my next list are the ways that God doesn't treat us the same. Because I, I don't think God does treat us identically, might be a better way of putting it. So first thing, God doesn't interact with each of us identically. Um, Luke 15 again, two sons. The gap between the two, each of the sons and the father are radically different, very different types of gaps. The sort of things that need to get sorted out for the sons to come back are very different. Very different types of offences, very different sorts of forgiveness need to happen. Different gaps to be bridged. Uh, not only that, God doesn't view all of us as equally culpable or equally responsible. Um, I'll read you a little bit of, just the last bit of Luke 12, 48. It's a story here about varying amounts of judgment. Verse 48 says, But the one who did not know and didn't, did what deserved punishment will receive a light beating. So if you don't know and you break a law, then your punishment is less than if you do know. But then he finishes, From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, even more will be expected. So there is this sense of, on Judgment Day, God will treat all of us differently. He will treat us as individuals. 
um, the nature of our sin, but also the level of responsibility or culpability will all be differently taken into account. And you'll, you should, again, know this intuitively, babies will be judged differently from fully morally responsible adults. The Bible tells us that teachers are judged and leaders are judged more harshly than um, not than followers, if you like. The privileged, more will be held, they'll be held to a much higher account. So we're not all treated identically. Um, the hard, again, we don't treat our kids identically. Our kids have different personalities, they have different issues they wrestle with. We don't treat them identically. We love them all the same, but we don't treat them identically. We treat them as their behaviour, as their trends dictate. Um, the next one might be the tricky one. Um, God doesn't pay an equal cost of forgiveness. Um, now, the cross is big enough to cover all our sins. Um, but again, the gaps are different. The sorts of breaches that God has to wrestle with. God's heart breaks in all sorts of different ways for all sorts of different people, and it won't be identical. Um, again, think of the father in the parable of the two sons. Um, I'm sure his hearts are more broken for the one that's with the pigs, in one sense. Um, because it's, that's the one who said to him, I wish you were dead, I want the money, I'm going to go and ruin my life. Um, there would be more sleepless nights over that one than the one that's at home. Even though with both of them, you'll long, them, long for them to come back. But again, the gospel, Jesus' death for us is enough to cover all the gaps. It doesn't matter the nature of the gaps or the size of the gaps. Um, this is not maths. The gospel is not maths. Um, it's about relationship. And the gospel can cover all those things, but it's not the same. The gaps are different. God treats us as individuals. And he doesn't reward us equally either. 1 Corinthians 3, you can look at that, but there are different levels of reward. Some people... Um, talks about how some people's works get through because they're gold and silver, others are burned up, but they still sort of scrape their way in. Even on the judgment day, we're treated as individuals. And also Jesus in other parables says, you know, well done, you did good stuff here, you got five cities in heaven, you get ten cities in heaven. The stuff here that we do matters. Gospel's big enough to cover it all, but it does matter. It's not that it's of no consequence that we behave horrifically now. So this is the point of the parable. God pours out his gracious blessing of forgiveness on everyone. The just, the unjust, the ones who are miles away, the ones who are close. Um, and in the same way that the farmer just gave them what they needed, which was we need, we need to live, um, through Jesus God gives us what we need, which is restoration and reconciliation back to him. And it's all right and good, it's not unjust. Let's go back to the story, because Jesus has this really, sort of turns it, the story around really interestingly. So in verse 14, sorry, verse 15. Um, farmer says, don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? This is all just. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing by blessing people. 
Um, and then he turns the tables back on the questioner and says, or are you jealous because I am generous? Now, there's a brilliant diagnostic question by Jesus. Um, and I reckon every time you think to yourself, you have this gut reaction, hang on, that's not fair. Every time you think that, it might be worth asking this question. Is this really unfair or am I just envious about something? Can we just grab the next slide? This, this is one example where I do this. It's like a marina with boats, right? And I, for a long time, thought, whenever I've gone past an arena, uh, a marina with these sort of really fancy yachts, um, I've thought and told whoever is around me, you know what I wish? I wish, like it's unfair that these boats sit there and they just sit there for weeks and weeks and weeks. I've got no problem with rich people owning boats, that's great, but why are they just sitting there empty? Why don't they share them with people? Why isn't there a system where these luxury things can be shared with people and we can all use them? That's the theory. And I, there's something to that theory. I, I still like it. But actually what the theory is, is I really like, would like to use that boat. That's the theory. Um, You've got a boat, I don't have a boat, I would quite like to have a boat. That's the theory. And that's, that's sort of envy. It's turning it, making it, their boat's about them. It's not even about me, but I've turned it into being about me. And here's the really twisted, nasty thing about it is I don't even like being out, I've been out on those sort of boats. I get bored after two hours. There's a nastiness to it as well. It's not, it's not really about justice. It's an envy. Envy is nasty because it's failing to rejoice in other people's joys. That was what it was in the Romans. We had the Romans reading. Rejoice in when other people rejoice. Rejoice with them. Rejoice if they are blessed. Envy doesn't do that. Envy makes it about you and not them. Um, which is also nonsense. Because what's happening between you and God and you and God and you and God. It's not anyone else's business. What happens between Rudolf Hess and, Hoss and God, that's between him and God. We don't get to decide that. Envy um, is a nonsensical, nasty thing. Also, envy comes in lots of different forms. We're good Protestants. So, in theory, we would say, we'll say things like, yeah, well, the gospel is for everyone. We, we don't believe that you're saved by your works. And so we've got a comfort about everyone being saved. But we'll have our own different envies. We'll get envious if, why is God blessing people who have got wrong theology? How does that work? Why are they blessing people who do the wrong sort of church? That's a pity. We're not very happy about that. We're not going to rejoice in that. God has to bless the right people who do it the right way and believe the right things. That's how, bless, that's how blessings work. And we don't want the thems to prosper um, because we're the goodies, right? Um, and here's another thing too. Envying people's blessings, um, there's another dark layer to it. There's no, nothing good in envy, but there are many dark layers to it. This, the sort of idea of, you know, I'm not really happy with someone like Rudolf Hoss who lives his whole life and then gets away with it at the end. Um, there's a real risk there that we sort of 
yeah, I would, that's what I would have liked to have done. I would like to have lived my own life on my own terms and had as much fun and done whatever I want and then time the ending right to sort of get in with God. Um, if you're uncomfortable with last-minute escapes, then it's maybe that's a sign that you really don't love hanging out with God and don't think that his life is the best. Um, it's also nasty because you really don't love that person. You don't want the best for that person. Um, I try and imagine, what if I was his dad? How would I think? Wouldn't I want him, all the time he's in the Nazi party, wouldn't I want him to get his act together and repent and come back? Um, what does it look like when you love them and when you want their blessing rather than, and when you rejoice in good things for them? And by the way, I think, I think this sort of blessing heavy is a very particularly Australian sin. And we talk about the tall poppy syndrome. Like, unless you're a footballer or maybe a musician, um, we will envy you and we'll pull you down. We won't, certainly won't rejoice in your success. Um, it's not like America. I, go, I spent a lot of, have spent a lot of time in America. And there it's, no, you go. You're wealthy. You've got a boat. Brilliant. Good on you. You've got a boat. Which brings me to my last thing, which is just like a suggestion. It's, a, it's pretty simple, really. And it's like a disposition to cultivate or a posture to cultivate, which I think will help us with this. And that is, there's just one more slide. There's no picture on the next one. Yeah, good for you. Just cultivate an attitude of when we see people blessed, good for you. Um, by the way, it's really important. It's not good by you not well done or good on you this is where Amer don't get me wrong american culture is no more gospelly than or grace-filled than it is here for them it's good on you it's a you it's on by your hard work you've become successful good on you you've done really really well that is not the gospel the gospel is no none of us have done a great job um it's good for you the gospel is good for you good for you that god has blessed you i'm going to rejoice in that Good for you, workers who came late. This is a tough economic climate and you need to feed your family. Good for you. I fed my family. I really would love it for you to, to feed your family. Good for you. Not good by you. You might be a lazy bugger, but good for you. And a good, uh, again, so many different ways that this can play out for us as we look around and attempted to envy God blessing people. Good for you, you have, the, you have the family that I wanted. Good for you, you have the, the life I wanted. Um, good for you, you have the gift I wanted. Whatever it is that you're tempted to be envious about. Good for you, you have the house I wanted, or the boat, whatever. Good for you. Um, try and cultivate that. Good for you, Rudolph. Not all good by you, horrifically bad by you, but good for you. Um, that's the gospel, and that's the attitude that God calls us to cultivate, and that's what this parable is about, I think. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that all of us, despite all of us, 
being sinners, despite all of us having gaps between um, you and us naturally, all sorts of different ways that we betray your love for us and turn away from you and resist you and run from you or try to work our way to you. All the individual ways, Lord, that we are separate from you. We thank you that the death of Jesus covers all those and is big enough to bring us all back. We thank you that you love each one of us so deeply and your love is relentless and your forgiveness is all covering. And Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in that. We would rejoice in your relentless forgiveness for all people, those we think are deserving, those we think are not deserving, and that we would, we would rejoice, rejoice in all the ways that you pour out blessings on everyone around us. Lord, we want to be people who rejoice when people rejoice. Um, show us the envy in our hearts and by your Holy Spirit. Um, take it away from us, Lord. We thank you for these things and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.